Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior researcher at the South Africa Institute of International Affairs on China-Africa relations. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it feels like we are in a moment right now. In the past two or three weeks, since the upheaval in Zimbabwe, there's been a lot of reflection going on on the continent about what direction it is going to take. And and I just, as you and I scan through the headlines every single day, I just noticed that there was all of this, this again, reflection's the best word, about what role China is playing. And in some ways, everybody expected that the fall of Robert Mugabe would somehow lead to a diminished Chinese influence, in, in at least in Zimbabwe, in part because Beijing supported Mugabe so much over the years that it was inconceivable that in the post-Mugabe era that they would yet be able to have the same level or even more influence. But yet now, with the fall of Mugabe and the Chinese reaction to what's happened there, it's been absolutely fascinating. So let's just kind of review a little bit here because it's going to really guide our con- our conversation. In the aftermath of Mugabe's fall, the United States Secretary of State Rex Tillerson All he did, his only reaction, was he put out a very, very brief statement congratulating Zimbabwe's on their countries, what he called their historic moment. And they refused to call it a coup. And they said that they just said, all we're asking for is that you maintain, quote, constitutional and civilian order. That was as much as the United States responded. Now, that's remarkable because for years the United States had had Robert Mugabe on par with Kim Jong-un and other dictators that it despised. But yet this was their reaction. Meanwhile, within the first two weeks of the new administration in Harare, Chinese ambassador to Zimbabwe, Huang Ping, he met with President Manangangwa. He also, there was a special envoy, the assistant foreign minister from Beijing who was sent, Chen Xiaodong, was on his way there. And the Chinese seemed to be really pulling in an amazing amount of influence in the new government there. And it's just, as an American... I find it really remarkable in part because this is what we were supposed to be doing. We were supposed to be the ones. We're always told from when we're young that Americans are the ones who support democracy. Americans are the ones who support the good guys. Americans are this role that, uh, you know, the house on the hill. And we're not playing that role right now. And so really, Kobus, here we are at this junction authoritarianism and this Beijing consensus, this type of state-led authoritarian capitalism, or are we going more towards an American-led or European-led international liberal economic order? And it seems like a lot of people in Africa are starting to think about what direction they should go. It's definitely, you know, a big crossroads moment. I mean, there's a few things. In the first place, I wasn't particularly surprised that China would have a a close relationship with post-Mugabe Zimbabwe, especially when it became clear that Nongagwa was going to be the leader, because he himself had had such close relations with China over the years. So it was like, okay, so this is happening, you know, kind of of powerful, the course. Um, In terms of democracy, we're in such an interesting moment because for so long the West has put out a narrative where democracy was this, was seen as the same thing as Western-style liberal democracy. Um, and obviously, Western-style liberal democracy works best in the West, you know, kind of where there is a whole bunch of institutions that support it. So 
that that made it difficult to implement in other places. You know, more successfully in some than others, and, and sometimes in Africa, disastrously. But then also at the same time, the West at the moment seems to be retreating from its own democracy in a way. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, institutional crises within the within the U.S. Uh, we're seeing Brexit. It's all of these these kind of moments when Western democracy seems very fallible, and it then raises a lot of questions, you know, in Africa about what's the right kind of direction to follow, especially considering that from the outside, China's kind of authoritarian capitalism model seems to be so successful. So in Africa, people are looking now around the world for where, in what direction to go. And you see the directions that some of the countries have taken, which let's look at Paul Kagame in Rwanda, who is emulating in many ways Singapore and China, very, very tight control of civil and political rights, but at the same time really emphasizing economic growth and development. Ethiopia seems to be following in a very similar direction. There are indications that uh, President Kenyatta in in Kenya also wants to go in that direction. Uh, President Jacob Zuma in your country, in your neighborhood there in South Africa, he has made no secret of his Go East policy. So there's a lot of thought and discussion right now going on across the continent. And in the in it came up really in in a, in a shared article, a conversation, what they call it, on China File, which is the fantastic website over at the Asia Society. You can see it at ChinaFile.com. And when there's major Chinese events, they ask people to write different opinions and columns for it. Little short takes on it, sometimes three or four hundred words. So I highly recommend that you take a look at it. And Kobus, you were invited to contribute this about about the Chinese role in the Mugabe. Uh, overthrow, and also was our old friend uh, Ntsetse Ware, who's an international development economist based out of Nairobi, and uh, she also contributed to this discussion and talked about the growing menace of authoritarianism in Africa and China's role to that. So we thought it would be great to bring back Ntsetse onto the show to talk about this at this really important juncture that the continent seems to be in. So Ntsetse, thank you so much for joining us again. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. You open your piece by saying, and I'm going to quote, the trend towards autocracy and authoritarianism in the region cannot be ignored and will have several implications for China. Let's start with that right away. First, talk to us a little bit about the trend towards autocracy and authoritarianism as you see it, and then give us a little bit of an overview as to what you think the implications are for China. Okay, well, as you've mentioned, um, we've already got two countries that are clearly authoritarian, which is um, uh, Rwanda and Ethiopia. They, as you have said, have made no secret about it, and, and they're very clear as to why they're using that model. Now, another country that's going in that direction is Burundi, where we're seeing a lot of uh, dissent against the, the ruling president. And he has basically started imprisoning and perhaps even killing people uh, for political reasons. You know, human rights organizations have expressed their concern on the amount of people that have been killed and imprisoned for political reasons. So it looks like the direction he's taking for Burundi is to restore order and then have a very authoritarian regime that will have very tight control over the, the civil, political, and economic space in Burundi. Now, the newcomer in the game is Tanzania. Magafuli, when he came into power, was immensely popular even here in Kenya because he was sort of very clear on having zero tolerance for corruption and all these things that Kenyans love to hear. But one of the things that's been happening as we're going on with his administration is that there are some worrying signs um, around his his bent towards authoritarianism, be it, you know, this notion that one of the chief, the chief whips 
troops of the of the opposition party was gunned down. He didn't die, but he was gunned down. Um, opposition figures have disappeared. He's closing down newspapers. And you know, in Africa, when we see these things beginning to happen, we get very nervous because those are usually the first steps a country takes for uh, the leader to become a full autocratic authoritarian figure that then will become very difficult to, to depose. You know, we need to remember that in Kenya, we had President Moy for well over 20 years who had that style of governance where he would kill or imprison opposition and he would shut down and have very big uh, tight control over, over the media space. So again, we're seeing now Tanzania going into this sort of, you know, authoritarian bent. So we're reaching a situation where Kenya is surrounded by all these neighbors who seem to be taking that route. Um, and, and we're beginning to ask ourselves, number one, what are the implications for us as a Kenyan democracy, uh, a country that seems to be committed to democracy? And number two, will this uh, sort of milieu of authoritarianism in the region pull Kenya in that direction? And so, so to to um, to be clear, that you make the point in your piece that this or this movement towards authoritarianism is it happening on its own, or do you feel that China is in some way an influence on that? I think that's a very interesting question because you know you need you need to understand that when. Africa is told success stories. We're always pointing to Asia. So Singapore, we're told Singapore, we're told South Korea, we're told China. And one of the defining features of, of those is, is that they were authoritarian, they were state-led, they were state-controlled, and they were state-governed. So there has been a conversation happening under the radar um, around, do we want hospital beds and development or do we want votes? Okay. Africans are beginning to ask themselves, what is the quickest, most efficient way to get Africans out of poverty. And I think that's why you're beginning to see some of these governments very openly become authoritarian. And the, and the reason why it's very difficult to criticize them is because they say, well, if you look at all of the catch-up stories, pretty much in a lot of Asia, that you, know, you as Europe and North America always tell us to look to, a lot of them are authoritarian. And if you want to get the burden of disease and poverty off of the world so that Africa is self-sufficient and organized, then there's this sort of commentary emerging that maybe this is the most efficient way to do it. Bear in mind that there's very strong opposition to this thrust. I mean, we have very active human rights group. We have a very active civil society group. We have a lot of nonprofits working at the grassroots with communities who sort of really want to ensure that uh, rule of law, democracy, human rights, and freedom of speech and freedom of expression are preserved. But that tension is emerging. But let me play the devil's advocate here. I mean, you kind of brushed off the fact that China, Vietnam, Singapore, these are all Asian-based authoritarian countries that are that are actually improving their well-being for their people in significant ways. I mean, what we've seen here in China is remarkable over the past 30 years. Similarly, in Vietnam, over the past 15 years, it's remarkable. At the same time, democracy really hasn't shown itself in the past 10 years, or now more recently in, in the past two or three, to be a mechanism that can actually deliver goods for people to improve their lives. We we talk about the narrative. Yes, it's always been assumed by Americans and Westerners that democracy is the best way. It, they've always said that democratic countries don't go to war with one another. Democratic countries trade better. But at the same time, I look at my own country and I see the fact that black people have one-nineteenth the amount of wealth of white people. There are uh, the incarceration rate of black people in the United States is higher than it was during Jim Crow now. Um, and, and it hasn't served all people well. And so I'm just wondering, 
why are you so aligned with democracy when there's a plentiful evidence that shows that even in the West, in advanced economies, it's not doing what it's supposed to do, much less in developing countries, it certainly may not be doing what it's supposed to do. Absolutely. And that's the argument for the states that pursue that, that, that direction. That is precisely their argument. And, and, we, and we, we completely see that. And I think the rise of China is really informing this shift in conversation around what is the best way for Africa to get itself in a, in a good place. I think to, thinking about this specifically the Kenya situation, one of the reasons there's so much resistance to authoritarianism, sort of this almost obsessive you know, capture to democracy, is because we've lived through an authoritarian leader that was ruthless. We, we, we lived through Moy, and although now he's enjoying retirement and he's a public figure that's, you know, sort of respected and, and you know, people sort of let him live his life. When he was in rule, Kenyans suffered immensely. You know, if you look at some of the leading political figures, such as Raila Odinga, he was openly persecuted by Moy. If you look at the way our economy was decimated, partly, obviously, because of the structural adjustment programs, but also partly because of sort of the way Moy was ruling. If you look at the the, the lack of um, freedom of expression, if you look at the political murders that took uh, place in, in during the Moi era. And I think the reason why Kenya is so sort of resistant to that authoritarian sort of direction is because a lot of us still remember, you know, a lot of us who are sort of in our late uh, 20s, early 30s grew up during Moi. And of course, all of our parents and all of those older than us lived through Moi. So there's this very, very real recent memory of how authoritarianism goes bad, that just because you're authoritarian, that does not mean that the country will develop. It really depends on the vision, uh, personality, and sort of priority uh, setting of that authoritarian leader. And in Kenya, our experience has, has not been good. Exactly. Like I, I, that's exactly the point I wanted to make, which is that in a way, this kind of authoritarianism that we're seeing in Rwanda and Ethiopia is a new, it's like authoritarianism 2.0 in a way. You know, it's, it's a new form of authoritarianism that has this technocratic element and that it's still a very young and new system and we still need to see whether it will actually lead to development in Africa the way that it did in Asia. Because the more dominant precedent that we have in Africa is, is essentially something like Idi Amin, you know, so it's or, you know, I mean, being a particularly extreme example, but what I mean is a form of re repressive authoritarianism where all freedom of speech is just stripped, but at the same time, it leads to zero development. You know, it, it's also frequently highly, highly corrupt um, and a kind of a kleptocracy with an authoritarian, authoritarian kind of aspect to it. So it doesn't necessarily, authoritarianism itself doesn't necessarily lead to development. It has to be a particular kind of technocratic authoritarianism. Um, and I mean, do you, you, you're in East Africa. I mean, obviously I'm in South Africa. Um, do you know, being closer to Rwanda, um, and Ethiopia, are they actually developing? Like, you know, we're seeing all these like financial times articles about how quickly they're developing, but is, is that actually happening on the ground? Um, well, I mean, that's an interesting question that I think you can ask across Africa is whether GDP growth is actually leading to, you know, significant improvements in life. I mean, one of the things that's fundamentally strengthening this authoritarian argument is, is because it is Ethiopia and Rwanda uh, that are leading in GDP growth. If you look at Ethiopia growing, you know, well over 8% for a lot of the time. In fact, um, during the last year, uh, the East Africa region led 
um, growth on the continent. The rest of the continent is sort of languishing in, 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 in a lot of difficulty and economic turmoil. Uh, but East Africa was sort of, you know, pottering along well above, you know, 5% as, as a region. And if you look at sort of the outlooks for, for Ethiopia, Ethiopia is going to grow at well over 8%, you know, Tanzania at over 6%, Rwanda well over 5%. Um, so it looks right now that in those authoritarian regions that they are doing well in terms of GDP growth per year uh, than, than, than Kenya is. Uh, I don't know if that is translating to a more equitable society. Um, and I don't know if the lived reality of access to government services, such as schools, health facilities, et cetera, is significantly improving. Uh, but we are seeing that this region really is being led uh, is, is leading a continent and that this region is very authoritarian. Um, so it's really beginning to start saying, well, if Nigeria were more authoritarian, would it be better? If they had this sort of, as you were saying, Kobus, this technocratic-oriented authoritarianism, would it get Nigeria back on track more quickly? Um, and, and there's another question that's happening sort of in Kenya and in the region, is that is democracy working for Kenya? Does democracy bring so many competing interests to the table that nothing can get done and nothing is done? This has been exemplified in the past sort of electioneering period that we've had that took the entire year. Um, it has really affected our economic performance. Um, and there are real questions around, is democracy worth it? Is, is democracy too expensive in terms of the effects it has on economic growth? Um, so these are really questions people are beginning to ask. You won't hear it a lot in sort of official government lines and maybe uh, not in sort of official commentary that Africans have. But it is a conversation that's happening is that, is democracy expensive? You know, and is the expense of that democracy worth it when we're not seeing a sort of correlated improvement in the quality of lives, even though we subscribe to this notion of, you know, uh, you know, an authentic democracy in an African context? That's the point that I want to pick up here. And, and I'll continue my theme here of playing the devil's advocate, uh, not necessarily because I'm endorsing authoritarianism, but I think it helps our discussion. So I want to put that out there before I get all the Twitter haters who's saying I'm an authoritarian, so they do happen. It does happen. Um, I've spent most of my adult life now in the developing world, in both Africa, Asia, mostly here in Asia. Uh, in Vietnam, I had lots of discussions with people, and I asked them, I said, would you want to be democratic? Because there's always the assumption from Americans that everybody wants to be like us, and we're trying to change the world to be more like us. Uh, in fact, we had a war in Vietnam to try and fight communism, uh, and obviously it ended poorly. <laughs> but so the question that I asked is, would you want to have a Jeffersonian-style democracy or something else? And it was fascinating. And I asked this question of dozens of different people, and nobody came, by, came back to me and said they want democracy. What they came back to me with was they want Singapore. They want schools that work, streets that are clean, police that are not corrupt. They want power that works all day. They want leaders that, are, that have some integrity and some morality and are not just stuffing their, their, their pockets full of cash. This, the political rights, the right of, of religion, the right of freedom of association, those civil and political rights are, are entirely secondary to a functioning society. And if the society functions, then they can worry about the next things. And I think in China, here's the same thing. I, I don't hear anybody from young people to even to dissidents who are, are quoted in the media saying democracy is what they want. In many ways, what they want is a better functioning society. And, and that is, to me, what resonates in Africa as well, that people are demanding 
results. And so far, I see a lot of the so-called democracies or the non-authoritarian countries, I won't call them necessarily full democracies, have not delivered the results. They're burdened down by corruption. They may have too many players, too many actors, too many voices, so that nothing really gets done. So the focus, at least in Rwanda, that Paul Kagame has brought to the political scene there is that he's getting things done. The roads are, are, well, are well paved. The schools are better. The, 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 the trash is picked up off the street. So I wanted to get your take on that is you because you really were very, very clear about rising autocracy. And I am questioning as to whether or not that's entirely a bad thing. Well, as Kobus pointed out, is that we have lived through a bloody, bloody season of um, autocracy in, 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 in this region. We had Mengistu in Ethiopia uh, and we had Mobutu in the Congo. And these were both autocracies and authoritarian um, structures, as Kobus was alluding to, that were immensely problematic and really decimated that country, be it from an economic point of view, be it from a civil, civil space point of view, be it from a human rights point of view. Now, the point that you're making around we want um, you know, a government that works, I think the danger that we're getting into is that we're beginning to say the only government that works are authoritarian governments. That sort of seems to be the commentary that's beginning to emerge, which I think is very, very dangerous. Um, I think one of the problems I fundamentally have with authoritarianism is that it is really personality driven. It is up to the individual who ends up in the seat of power to determine where the country goes. If that individual, such as Mela Zanawi, happens to be open to technocracy and he happens to be open to that style of authoritarianism, then it will go in that direction. And let us not forget Museveni in Uganda, who is an authoritarian figure as well. Has he delivered? So one of the real points of anxiety for a lot of Africans around authoritarianism is if we get the leader wrong, where will it take our country? De definitely. I 100% agree. I mean, the the other issue um, is to then also ask, you know, whether democracy itself is free of authoritarianism. Um, and so frequently, I think one of one of the reasons why there's a, a, a somewhat kind of a, lo a lot of doubts arising in Africa about democracy is because the, the, the kind of you have a system, a situation where there's so much uh, work goes into maintaining the form of democracy, the rhythm of elections. But then within that, each of those elections or, you know, by-elections or whatever, they, you know, they, they, each of them opens the, the chance for a whole bunch of different interests to try and, and kind of warp and control and manipulate those institutions. So... You know, the, the, the reason Western-style democracy works so well or has traditionally worked so well in the West is that those institutions were so strong and stable. The bureaucracy was so, was so strong and stable that, you know, it could withstand the, the every few years craziness of the, of the election season. In, with weak institutions in Africa, that means that frequently the craziness of the election season starts kind of gobbling up the institution itself and it starts sprawling out over you know, the rest of the time when, when the system is just supposed to be running smoothly. Um, and that, I think, that together with, with the, the very real issue of corruption makes it very dangerous, makes democracy sometimes very volatile in Africa. And that, and that I think, raises doubts. Um, and let's say, I wonder if you could talk about a little bit about corruption itself. I mean, you, when you mentioned Tanzania, that, that the, the, the story that this... A, a leader is coming in, he's going to crack down on corruption. 
that is such an appealing narrative. Um, you see that that narrative happening around Xi Jinping in China, his anti-corruption campaign. And I was also thinking while you were talking, I was thinking that if someone, even in South Africa, where I think you know South Africa is this paragon of democracy, and it's so democratic rights are so recent after apartheid that I think that you know South Africans are really really. Uh, very, how can I say, like they're, they're, they're very strongly democratic, I think. You know, it's something that people would rev- find very difficult to give up now. But even here, I think, you know, if you made a strong case that you will crack down on corruption and in, in turn what you want is greater government control, I think a lot of South Africans would actually, even South Africans would give you that. So I was wondering, like, how you see that narrative playing out in East Africa? Well, I think the the ultimate questions we're going to ask ourselves is at what cost? Because if you look at what's happening in our region, it's a cost. You know, if you look at what happened to the lady who ran against Kagame, I mean, she's being openly persecuted, like she will not have any peace. And he's doing that for a reason, because he's making it clear that he wants to be in charge. If you look at what's going on in Tanzania and sort of the things that Magafuli is doing around women's rights, you know, saying that young girls who get pregnant aren't allowed to go back to school. This is these are really infringements of human rights. So one of the concerns we've had um, going across the board in Africa is, it, is at what cost? Now, you have to bear in mind that um, you, we are f- functioning in an environment here in Africa where authoritarianism, particularly in a country like Kenya, wouldn't um, sort of have a seamless rise into um, installment. Even in Tanzania, you're seeing it, where you have to bear in mind that there's a lot of civil society organizations that are funded mainly by Europe and North America, whose job it is to whistleblow, to raise concerns about human rights, to raise concerns about delivery of government services, to raise concerns about corruption. That is a role the media is also financed to do. So I think if a country like Kenya, and as we're seeing in Tanzania, is going to go through the journey to authoritarianism, number one, um, those countries need to be very clear at what cost that's going to happen. And number two, um, they need to know that there will be massive resistance, whether that is indigenous resistance that is self-organized indigenously, or that is resistance that is sort of financed by Europe and North America, sort of in what we're seeing in sort of the lesbian, gay, um, and, and, and transsexual space uh, here in East Africa that's also being massively funded, uh, particularly by Europe now, not so much the U.S. anymore. Um, there is going to be resistance, and it is going to be financed. I think finally, one of the one of the fundamental issues that we're seeing also here, the emergent authoritarianism here, is that it is not it is not a Singapore. It is not stable. Yes, perhaps Kagame is delivering to his people. Uh, yes, perhaps Ethiopia is is you know really growing very quickly and and has a robust agricultural sector. It's really moving into light manufacturing very well and all of that. But already we're seeing dissent happening on the ground. We're seeing private property being destroyed by people who are destroying private property because of their political issues that they have with the government. So in Africa, even if there's going to be this journey towards authoritarianism, there will be massive dissent. I think the reason why Rwanda has been particularly unique is because Kagame came in in such a dark time in that country that people just wanted peace and they just wanted to get on with their lives and they wanted somebody who would allow them to get back to a normal way of living. So I think the Rwanda context was very, very unique. Uh, But I think right now we're already seeing that unrest is happening in these authoritarian regimes. And and what will that spell out for the country in terms of creating sustained economic growth? Well, I guess, you know, as you're saying this, I'm wondering... Will the dissent matter? I mean, I, I, in my own country, there's enormous dissent against the regime, and yet at the same time, it doesn't seem to have any effect. Uh, 
And power is becoming increasingly concentrated in smaller numbers of people, not just in Africa, but also in the West as well. And yet the masses have been disempowered in many ways. Communication, globalization, the way that finance works has really worked against democracy. And so I'm wondering now that as African, I like to bring our conversation back to China because that's kind of what we do here, uh, is... Um, now that Africa's trade relationships and FDI tend to come more from China than anywhere else, the Chinese have their non-interference policy, which means that they are not going to be a source of pressure on these governments. Uh, the Americans, as we're seeing, as, as I talked about at the top of the show, they are withdrawing and they're repositioning themselves, not necessarily pulling out of Africa or retreating, but refocusing on security and refocusing on uh, anti-terrorism and not on civil rights and, 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 and political rights. And Europe just seems distracted to the point where it can't really occupy itself with anything else. So my question to you is that where is going to be the support for the dissent, and if trade relationships are aligning themselves more with China, won't that actually push us more towards the autocracy than towards the democracy's side of the equation? Uh, there are two things to say. Number one, yes, I think I think I completely agree with you when you're saying sort of this growing insularity in Europe and North America. We're feeling it in Africa. Um, we are feeling the the withdrawal of financing um, to civil society. You know, uh, but they are just to let you know that there are, there is still a lot of money from an African point of view going to organizations that 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 do still believe in in, in protecting those rights. Um, I think the, the 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 other issue that is beginning to emerge, which is sort of alluded to earlier, and sort of China coming into that, is that we've seen um, China come in and China grow, etc. And we've seen the fact that China can plan for 10, 15 years. To us in Africa, that. That is a miracle because, as Kobus was alluding to earlier, we are seeing the disruptive effect of elections. Kenya is a perfect example. We don't work for five years. We work for two and a half years because the first year the new government is settling in and the next two, the next year and a half, everybody is off campaigning and nobody is actually getting any work done in terms of keeping the country going. So one of the fundamental problems that we're having, which is why we're looking to Rwanda and Ethiopia and looking at China, is we cannot plan if we're stuck in these five-year cycles. And because, as Kobus pointed out, we have such weak institutions, because we're very young countries, I think the world tends to forget that we are much younger than China, we are much younger than, than obviously Europe and North America. A lot of the African countries are younger than my parents. They're about 50, 50 years old at, at most. Um, so we're very young, and that, that's one of the reasons we have such weak institutions. So one of the problems that we're having is how do we seed a sense of stability through an institutional frame, framework that is not political, an institutional framework that is linked to public service, that is linked to stability in government institutions following the mandates and sort of the governance structures that they have. And how do we begin to delink the cyclical disruption of elections from the functioning of an economy? Because here in Kenya, we're really beginning to feel the pinch. And it is precisely that sort of argument where we're saying, well, guys, do you want us to just have one party in power for 15 years and they sort everybody out? Or do you want to continue with these cyclical disruptions where every time a new election comes in, you have to find out who the new minister is, who the new CS, you know, it's just a time-wasting affair, you know, and, and there is an acknowledgement of that. But as I said, um, it is not as though authoritarianism in Africa has delivered for the Africans. After the end of the Cold War, a lot of people thought that the war for ideas was over 
and that capitalism and democracy was the predominant and forever winner. The What was it, Kobus, uh, who was the writer of the state? Francis Fukuyama said the end of history. That was it. There is only one way to go, and it is the the, de- the democratic way. Uh, what we are seeing today is that's no longer the case. China and some of the East Asian states are putting out a model uh, that is very appealing for a lot of people. And But as we're seeing in the questions and the discussion that we're having today, it is very, very complex. And in some way, tiny Zimbabwe and the fall of Robert Mugabe has opened the wound in many ways as to whether or not this is going to be the direction for Zimbabwe, or is this going to be the direction that Africa takes in terms of going towards a more democratic open regimes or turning towards authoritarianism and autocracy. Uh, And Setse Ware is one of the people who is thinking about this at this amazing time in history, and we thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to join us. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, where's the best way they can stay in touch with you? They can find me on Twitter at Anzetsa, and I have a blog which is on my Twitter feed. So just go to my Twitter, and I'm there. I write all all my articles, and all my content is posted there. And Zetsa really is one of the most interesting people writing these days and thinking about some of these big issues. And so I, I encourage everyone to go check out her blog and also to see her Twitter feed. And Zetsa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Kobus, I have to say that over the past six or seven months, I've really been struggling inside about this issue, about the concept of do democracies work better than authoritarian governments? And the authoritarianism that that Nzetse was talking about is the, the, um, the Moy authoritarianism of Kenya in the 1980s and 90s, which was brutal. The authoritarian capitalism that I have been seeing here in Asia, in Vietnam and in China, is one that has lifted the living standards of people. Tens of millions, billions of people actually now in this part of the world. Uh, Again, it's hard to talk about this and not sound like you're endorsing the awful parts of authoritarianism, which I am most certainly not. But what I see in front of me every single day are people who are living vastly better lives than they were 30, 40 years ago. And yet in much of Africa, It's gotten better over the past 15 or 20 years, but yet it is still struggling. And I'm going through my own internal crisis based on what's happening in my own country and seeing the rollback of so many democratic norms, seeing the injustice that confronts minorities and poor people, and really questioning whether or not the United States, which has so long stood for democracy around the world, really in this day and age does that anymore. Donald Trump came to China and didn't seem to mention human rights at all. And that's a big, big change. The United States doesn't really stand for these things anymore. And so this has prompted, I won't call it a crisis, but it's been a lot of self-reflection. And I think that's why the timing of this conversation with Nsetse and what's going on in Africa and what maybe Robert Mugabe's departure has sparked in terms of a broader discussion on the continent with regards to which way so many of the countries there are going to go towards authoritarian capitalism, towards dictatorship and autocracy, or maybe to lift, to stay towards the European and U.S. liberal economic way of doing things. I don't know. I mean, what's your thought on this? I think in the end, probably they're going to go in some other new direction that will be a mix of some of these. I can't imagine then uh, Africa suddenly growing a you know, 20th century style European or American democracy, simply because that's just not how life is set up there. You know, there's this other, there's other kind of 
structural issues that that you know and and challenges that did that didn't exist you know in the setting up of of western democracies um but i do hope that there will be whatever system it'll be will be a system that's open to some form of of popular decision making and and popular participation um because the, you know obviously the long history of africa has always been that africa has had dis- Af- normal africans have had decision making power stripped away from them you know either through racism or colonialism or authoritarianism all of these different reasons um and so in a way that's still something that's been deferred um you know africans still ha- are waiting in lots of ways for the opportunity to really decide about what they were what their lives are going to be like um and whatever system is coming has to take that into account um and but i i agree with you i'm not you know i it's it looks it's looking kind of you know dark and murky at the moment it's difficult to say which system would actually enable that especially you know when you look at how much development is needed at the same time and how much of that development is the you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs kind of development you know kind of where you need to build big roads through little farms for example you know that those that kind of brutal infrastructure provision kind of development phase you know that that a lot of countries go through um so you know long story short like i you know i i i have no idea which system it has to be we know what kind we want but we don't necessarily know how to get all of the things we want in one system. Yeah, these are very very complex questions coming at a very interesting time. We'd love to hear what you think about it. I, again, I don't think Kobus and I are going to pretend that we have the answers. I certainly I am wrestling with this myself while I share Kobus's desire for popular participation in politics. I see the trends going in a different direction right now and at the same time Sitting here in Shanghai, it is one of these points of view where you see the effectiveness of the Chinese system in terms of what it's been able to do for hundreds of millions of people in economic terms, at least. Uh, in Vietnam, similarly, it's been a, a, a stunning story over the past 10 or 15 years. And I think Africans are looking out to the world for inspiration and for direction and for partners who are going to help them get there. And which way will they turn? Um, At this point, I don't think the United States is turning to be out the partner that will be there, a steady and reliable partner in this endeavor, when China has made it very clear that they will be for countries like Zimbabwe. So that does not bode well for democracy in the region, to be honest with you. So um, it's, wow, yeah, you can feel the difficulty that we're having in expressing this, but we would love you to join the conversation. Follow us over on Facebook. Also, check out our email newsletter that we have. And if you want to find out about any of that, just go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. But one very quick point here. If you're a Spotify listener, you are definitely going to want to find out that we are now on Spotify. So you can listen to a podcast right there within your Spotify app. You can subscribe to it. uh, And we would love to hear from you as well. So thank you to everybody who's been listening to us throughout the years. Uh, Of course, we're coming up in December, which means it's our end of year review preview show that we do. So we take a break during the Christmas holiday, but we're preparing now for our year in review show that will be coming up in a couple weeks. So until next week, we'll be back again with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus Venstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. 
The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.